Well, hey, Harvest, uh, thank you guys for tuning in and uh, joining us in this study as we work our way verse through verse through the book of Philippians. We are halfway through our study officially with this message. We have been in this series in Philippians called Joy for Today. And I would ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians 2. We're gonna be finishing up the second chapter. And then next week, Cal, will pick it up at the beginning of chapter three, where Paul begins that chapter by saying, finally, brothers. So actually chapters three and chapter four of Philippians are kind of this long goodbye. And I don't know if you have... Um, people in your life who come over to your house and are like, well, we should be going and 20, 30, 40 minutes later, they still haven't left. But that's kind of what Paul does to the Philippians in this letter. And we're gonna be looking specifically this morning at the last few verses of chapter two, picking it up in verse 17 through the end of the chapter. But the verses that we're looking at, actually the, the train of thought that these verses complete was started all the way back at the end of chapter one. And at the end of chapter one, what Paul says is this in verse 27, he's saying you need to live your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And then what he tells us in uh, the last few verses of chapter one is this, that we need to stand firm, that we need not to be frightened, that we should expect persecution. And I preached on that three weeks ago. And the big idea that morning was this, that joy is not stolen by persecution, but by drifting. And then after talking about standing firm and not being afraid and expecting persecution, Paul continues that same thought at the beginning of chapter two when Ryan preached through the first eight or 11 verses of chapter two, talking about this idea that not only do we have to live worthy of the gospel in a world that is pagan where we might anticipate some persecution, but the reality is we need to be uh, worthy of the gospel in the way we conduct our lives within our relationships in the church. And he kind of hammered this idea that Paul hammers in those first few verses that we need to be people who lay down our pride and live in humility so that we can live in the church in a unified manner that we don't lose our unity when trouble comes. His big idea two weeks ago was staying low is essential to staying together. And in that section of scripture in verses five through 11, Paul gives us this example that our example is Jesus Christ who was willing to humble himself and to come to earth and empty himself and take on human form and all the way to the point of the cross that he is our example and how we're to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then last week, Cal picked it up and taught us that wonderful verse uh, in verse 14, do all things without grumbling and complaining, I'm sure, that wasn't convicting for any of you. But uh, in this season, when you endure hardship, we've got to remember that our attitudes matter. And Cal's big idea was how we respond when we are frustrated matters. So I'm picking it up in verse 17, building off this same kind of thought process as Paul brings it to a close. So take a moment, just look at verse 17. Let me read it for you. It says this, Paul says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Well, that's kind of a weird phrase. And if you look at it actually in the original language in the Greek, that word being poured out as a drink offering is just one Greek word. So that whole phrase is used to translate one word in the Greek. And what that word means is basically that I am a living sacrifice. It brings me back to uh, what Paul said when he was writing to the Romans in Romans 12, where he says, I urge you brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your, in the new American standard is your reasonable service in the ESV. It's 
which is your worship. And so Paul is saying that I am choosing to live my life in a sacrificial manner to model for you what it means to live worthy of the gospel. And he says, listen, my my life is a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith that is an example for you. And then he goes on at the end of verse 17, and I find this amazing. He says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul, this leader of the church, even though he is going through difficult times, is he saying, listen, I want you to imitate me. I want you to have the same joy that I have and to understand what he's saying fully. Sometimes we have to even look beyond the words that he's saying and understand the conditions that he finds himself in as he says those words to grasp their full meaning, the weight of what he's trying to communicate. So just really quickly, as we're in chapter two here, and we've been studying this book for several weeks, let me just remind you of Paul's current condition. First thing you need to remember, and we've talked about this, is the idea that Paul is a prisoner. It says in verse 19, it says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Well, why is Paul sending Timothy back to the church in Philippi? Because he can't go. He's he's a prisoner. His freedoms have been stripped from him. He is living a life where he can't do everything that he wants to do. He, He can't get to the church. And from Paul's writings, you begin to kind of get a feel for his personality. My sense is that Paul does not like being cooped up in a prison cell. I I am sure that he is not lazy. I'm sure that he is industrious. And if he had his way, he would have the freedom to move about and accomplish the things that he believes God's called him to. He's a missionary. But in this season, he's a prisoner. His freedoms have been taken from him. He is, in effect, on the bench. I don't know if um, you've played sports as you were growing up or high school sports. I played high school sports. I played soccer and baseball and basketball. And and during my four years in high school, I won um, four uh, varsity letters, um, none for basketball. I only made it to JV and basketball. Uh, my, My wife, I think, has 11 or 12 varsity letters. But when I met Kristen, I was playing JV basketball. I was a sophomore. She was a freshman. She was starting on the varsity basketball team. And I remember playing JV basketball, never getting into games. And, and, and how frustrating that is. And I would be sitting on the bench just waiting for my opportunity, waiting for my opportunity. And, you know, the reality starts to hit you that if, if you're not starting at the JV basketball level and the point guard that you're sitting the bench behind is, he's only 5'2", that, that you probably don't have a future on the varsity team. And that's kind of where Paul is. He's benched. He's understanding that he can't do the things that he wants to do. So he's a prisoner. Here's a second thing. He's in need of cheer. Look what it says in verse 19. He says this, he's gonna send Timothy to them soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. If, when your freedoms are taken away, when you can't do what you want to do, it very quickly, your mood can change. A couple of weeks ago, Calvin was preaching and he referenced that he and Mary are kind of watching this show on uh, on, on the you know, I don't know if it's on Prime or if it's on Netflix, but he's watching this show called Alone. It's a survival show where they send contestants out into the wilderness on their own to see how long they can last. The one who lasts the longest uh, wins some money. So 
that got Kristen and I interested. We've watched season one of this show alone. And, and it's amazing as you watch these contestants out in the wilderness on their own under just crazy difficult circumstances, cold weather, bad weather, rainy weather. It's amazing to watch how their moods go up and down by the events of the day. Like if they set traps and then they go check their traps and they don't catch any food, man, man they're bummed and they're in their tent and all they want to do is go home. And then later on that afternoon, they'll go back and recheck the traps and, and maybe they've caught a fish or this one kid, he's out there trying to catch mice so that he can eat them. And, and like one mouse will completely change this kid's mood from despondent to euphoric that he finally has something to eat. And, and if we're not careful, our moods can really drift just with our circumstances. And because of Paul's circumstances, he's, he's a little low on cheer. He's in need of cheer. He's saying, listen, I want some good news. Here's a third thing that we see from the verses that we're looking at today, that he's kind of low on support and he's very, very high on critics. It says in verse 20, speaking of Timothy, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So he, he says, apart from Timothy, you need to understand that the, the, the crew that's here in Rome with me, they're not really faithful. They're focused on their own interests. I don't have anybody that really cares for the welfare of others. And, and we can go on later on after he sends Timothy back to the churches. We read the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy. And in the last chapter there, in chapter four, he's like, listen, I've been abandoned. Like, like I've got guys that have opposed me. And Paul's in a situation where not only is he in prison and not only is he in need of cheer, but he's low on support and high on critics. Just, just reading that made me think back to the Old Testament and the story of Job, where Job was going through a very, very difficult season. Um, Paul's going through a difficult season. Job was going through a difficult season, but it wasn't just the calamity that Job found himself enduring, but his wife comes to him in the midst of the calamity and is like, curse God and die. And, and, and Paul's kind of, experiencing the same thing. It's just, it's not helping. He's low on support. He's high on critics. And then another thing I want you to see, his present is uncertain. It says in verse 23, Paul writes, he goes, I hope therefore to send him, being Timothy, just as soon as I see how it'll go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. And as we read the verses, we understand that Paul's in prison. And because some of us know the end of the story, that Paul will be executed for his faith in Jesus Christ, we, we read this and what we realize is at this moment as he's writing to the church in Philippi, he doesn't know the end of his own story. He, he's not suffering knowing that he's on death row, that he will eventually be executed. Actually, he's hopeful that hopefully soon that he's going to be released from prison, that he's going to regain his freedom. So he is in a situation where he's hopeful that he will be freed. His, his present circumstance, he doesn't know what the rest of today holds. He doesn't know what tomorrow holds. And I don't know about you, but like Paul, it's not always easy when times are uncertain. I don't know if you've ever gotten that phone call where maybe somebody says to you, hey, we need you to come back in. And the, the doctor wants to run just a, a few more tests. Or we're, we're in a season where we just don't have the work coming in that we can continue to keep you employed or, or maybe 
someone's looked at you and said, I'm just not sure that I love you anymore. Or they've said, Jesus told me to break up with you. What a terrible line that is. But maybe you've been through a season where your world's been disrupted, that things are uncertain. Maybe, maybe you find yourself living maybe in a global pandemic where we're under an executive order that we can't gather more than 10 indoors or 100 outdoors, and there is great uncertainty when that will change. That's where Paul finds himself. He's experiencing uncertainty. And then a fifth thing I'd like you to see is he, he's experiencing sorrows. Jump down to verse 27. He writes, speaking of Epaphroditus, the other friend that he mentions in these verses, he's saying that he was near to death. Epaphroditus was. It says, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Well, Paul is saying, because God was merciful, he allowed Epaphroditus to live because if he would have died, that would have added more sorrows to my current sorrows. Well, you can't add sorrows to sorrows unless you're already experiencing sorrows. And we don't know the source of Paul's sorrow. Maybe it was, word was trickling back to him from other churches, the persecution that they were suffering. Or maybe he was hearing of other missionaries and pioneers in the gospel of Jesus Christ that were being martyred for their faith. Or maybe it was his current health or his current suffering that he was enduring. But Paul's enduring suffering And then I want you to see this too, just finally a sixth thing. Look at verse 28. He says, I am the more eager to send you therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So so Paul is admitting here to us that he is in a season where not only has his freedom's been stripped, not only is he um, sorrowful, but he's anxious. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know what the future holds. He doesn't know what tomorrow holds. He doesn't know what today's hope holds. He doesn't know what's going on in the churches. He doesn't know when his circumstances will change. Paul carries the weight of caring for the churches because he has been their pastor, their founder. He says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight 28 to the church in Corinth, he says this, and apart from all the other things, he's described all the other hardships that he's gone through, being shipwrecked, being beaten, being imprisoned. Then he says, apart from all of those things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And what Paul is letting us see in what he's writing to this church in Philippi is this, that he's human, that, that there are times when he has fears, when he is anxious that this is normal. It's a, it's a part of life that we all experience. And the issue isn't that sometimes we find ourselves fearful or anxious. The, the real question that we have to answer is this. What do we do when we find ourselves anxious? When we find ourselves fearful, where do we take and who do we take our anxieties to? Paul's gonna develop that fully in chapter four in his letter to the church in Philippi. So Paul's condition, he's a prisoner, he's in need of cheer, he is low in support, he's high on critics, he is finding himself where his present circumstances are uncertain, he is experiencing sorrow sorrow, and he is anxious. And yet in the midst of these circumstances, listen to what he says. He says, listen, imitate me. Verse 17, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. How in the world is Paul joyful to the point where he can tell others to imitate his joy in spite of his present circumstances. Now, true confessions, I tend to be more of a half empty guy than a half full guy. I tend to be more pessimistic than optimistic. I 
tend to be a little bit of a, a skeptic, a little cynical, a little... Well, some of you are like that. You, you understand what I'm talking about. So what happens when a guy like me sees a guy like Paul, we become annoyed by Paul. We're like, something's wrong here. Like, like, like maybe, maybe Paul's just not a very deep thinker. Maybe he just likes to live his life kind of blissfully ignoring the realities that he's suffering. Like, like maybe the problem is he's just not, he's not very smart. He's not a very deep thinker. Or, 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 or maybe we start comparing our circumstances to the person who has joy in the midst of their difficult circumstances. You say, well, maybe their difficulty isn't really as great as my difficulty. And, and, and we want to discount their joy because we struggle to experience the same joy. So as I look at the verses this week from 17 to 30, finishing this thought that developed all the way back in chapter one, the question that goes through my mind as I study this passage is, what is the source of Paul's joy? What, what does this guy have that in spite of what he's going through, he has the boldness to look at the other followers of Jesus Christ and say, hey, be worthy of the gospel Imitate my joy. Thinking about my dad this week, he actually passed away nearly 25 years ago. And um, I remember that when I was growing up and uh, we were in a season where I was the youngest kid, all the other kids had moved out of the house. It was just me and um, uh, my mom and my dad. And I was probably around 16 years old. I remember I was in high school and uh, my dad, he was... um, an electrician, an electrical engineer. He worked hard all his life. We were middle class and uh, raised five kids and honestly lived a pretty simple life. And I remember back when I was in high school, he was in his mid-50s. And one of his friends, a a guy that he served with on the deacon board at church, uh, the church that we grew up in, um, got into a financial problem on a real estate deal that he was in. And so my dad uh, was approached by his friend and said, hey, is there any way that you could scrape together some money and loan me some money? So my dad gave him everything that he had in savings. He gave him, uh, actually went to his bank and borrowed a little bit of money that he could in order to help his friend kind of get over this bump in this real estate transaction that he had. But the reality was um, this wasn't a bump. This was a, um, it was a nightmare. And, And my dad lost everything. Not only did he lose all of his savings, but now he had to pay a bank back for the money that he borrowed and he was 55. And you can imagine how life-shattering this was for my father. And I was in the house. I I witnessed the whole thing. And I'm sure there were moments that he was angry. I'm sure there were moments that he was frustrated, that he was bitter. But the reality is I never saw it. It didn't change him. It it didn't affect his joy. And and as I've looked back on this, my my dad would work every day till the day he died. He died when he was 70 years old. He didn't retire when he was 65. My my dad wasn't a, a man of many words, but the reality was the example that he left for me when he went through difficult times, his actions spoke way louder than his words ever could. You know, parents, sometimes we, we teach our kids more by what we do or how we respond than what we could ever say. I believe one of the most important things that you can do as a spiritual leader is live a godly life that can be imitated. And our actions often outlive our words. I was thinking about this even in my own life and reflecting on some of the traits and characteristics that my kids have picked up from 
my life, my attitudes. And, and if I were honest, I think a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times your kids reflect um, or kids reflect their parents' values, their parents' attitudes. If you're constantly happy, you might tend to have happy kids. And in my case, I tend to be um, rebellious. Um, I don't like that word. I, I like independent thinker better than rebellious. But the reality is I, I, I tend to be a little bit rebellious. So it should come as no surprise that um, as I look at my six kids and the paths that they've chosen, um, some of them are, well, I'll just say independent thinkers. And the kids, your kids will reflect the values, the attitudes that you reflect. In, in, in my life, even though I tend to be rebellious and this has played out in some of my kids' lives, I'm so thankful for God's grace, amen? And, and I'm thankful for a, a wife in Kristen who somewhat balances me out in some of these areas. But what you model will often carry more weight than what you say. So, so the question that I would ask you today as you consider that, How's your attitude towards authority in this season? What, what, what are the things that you are posting on social media? What, what, what are you not saying to your friends, but modeling for your friends or your, or your coworkers or your kids or your, or your family? What is it communicating? Are, are you able to stay joyful and positive even in a season of trial or a season of uncertainty? I remember uh, this phrase a, a pastor used that I've, I haven't forgotten. He said, when your upside goes downside, your, what's inside comes outside. Let me say that again, because it's a little confusing even as I say it. When your upside goes downside, what's inside comes outside. And, and, and the big question in this message, we normally have a big idea, but this week it's a big question. Here's what I would ask you. It's very simple. Is your joy worth imitating? Paul's asking the church in Philippi, imitate my joy. And I would ask you the question, is your joy worth imitating? So as we go through the text, we've kind of looked through the verses that we're going to be studying to look at Paul's current condition. Let's go back through these same verses one more time and try to identify, and there's just gonna be four of them, four keys that Paul mentions for maintaining his joy. Here's the first one. You'll find it in verse 19, the key or the first key to maintaining joy is this, that his hope is in the Lord. Look what it says in verse 19. I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon that I too may be cheered by news of you. So he starts this by saying, hope, my hope is in the Lord. That, that word hope, it is a verb. It's not a noun, it's a verb. It is an action. It is in the present tense. And it is that act of hope is the present choice to believe in God for a future result. It is believing in a God whose goodness and mercy can be relied on and whose promises cannot fail. And you will find throughout the New Testament, be it Paul or Peter, when they are addressing a church that is enduring difficult times or persecutions, they will most often turn the conversation to this hope that they have in the future that the return of Christ is coming. So when a church faces persecution, the conversation always turns to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is, he's saying one of the keys that I have for maintaining joy through difficult seasons is that my future is secure because I can count on the promises of my savior, Jesus Christ. Where are you going to maintain your hope in this season? 
You go back to the promises that are in the word of God. I was listening to a devotional that my my daughter-in-law Mary gave this week to our church on Wednesday night. And she's going, what are some of the promises that you trust? And just write them down in the comment section. And I was watching people just paste verse after verse of God's promises that give them comfort and hope in difficult seasons. I, I would argue all day that if you are a little bit down on your joy right now, God's word and the promises of God are a way better source to restore your joy than CNN, than, than, than Fox News, than Facebook. Paul has placed his hope in the promises of God. When we are surrounded by uncertainty, when the waves are uh, raging, when the wind is blowing, when we're in those seasons, man, you focus on the horizon, you place your hope for the future in the promises of Jesus Christ. Here's a second thing I see in the text. These kind of go together. Look at verse 23. Not only is his hope in the Lord is, that implies future, but he says in verse 23, speaking of Timothy, I hope to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Verse 24, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So he says two things. He says, first, I hope in the Lord. That kind of has future meaning, but then he uses a different word. He says, I trust in the Lord. Hope and trust go together. It's kind of like peanut butter and jelly. It's like ice cream, vanilla ice cream and chocolate sauce. It's like Kanye and Kim. It's, I'll stop there. But but, but you get what I mean. The, The idea of not only trusting in God for your future, but believing that God is control of my circumstances right now, that he is doing something through this difficulty that not only is for his glory, but it's also for my good, that he's in control right now. Paul doesn't know how his current situation is going to end. So he's got some worries. He's got some sorrows. He's got some anxiousness. But he says, listen, my hope is in the Lord. That's future. And my trust is in the Lord. I'm trusting him for tomorrow because I can't control what tomorrow brings. It's going to have enough trouble of its own. And today has enough trouble that not only is it my hope, but my trust is in my Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the third thing. I really struggled with how to word this, but the, the third point would be this. It's not just that he hopes in the Lord or trusts in the Lord, but he has godly partners. I, I first wrote it and said gospel friendships, but quite honestly, it's even more than friendship that Paul is talking about. He's talking about men that he has partnered with in the advance of the gospel that have maintained his joy through difficult seasons. He, he talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus, fellow uh, partners with him in ministry, godly partners. And look what he says in verse 25. He says this, he goes, I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus had been sent from Philippi to Paul while he's in prison to give him money or give him supplies. He had gotten sick on the way, almost died. And now Paul is sending him back to the church in Philippi. And he describes his friend this way. He says three things. He says, my brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier. In verse 22, earlier, he says of Timothy, his protege, his companion through much of the New Testament and his missionary journeys. But he says, you know of Timothy's proven worth. How? As a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. It's interesting. Sometimes I get asked, so, you know, transitioning from a professional career or a business career into the pastorate, what are the things that you enjoy most about being a pastor? And, and I'm just going to be honest, it's, it's not the preaching. It, it, it's not the management of everything that goes with 
running a church. Those aren't my favorite parts of being a pastor. If, if, if you were to ask me, what's your favorite part of being a pastor? Here's what I know is in second place. Second place is watching people respond to me when I meet them and then we talk for a little while and then I drop on them. Oh, by the way, I'm a pastor. I love watching the way they respond when they find out I'm a pastor, but that's second place. First place is this, the relationships that it has allowed me to experience and the gospel partnerships that I have enjoyed over the last 10 years. Some of those are on our staff currently. Some of those are no longer on our staff. I think of Dan and Christy Cook and Eric and Jenny Klingel and just this, this joy I have to, to kind of share in what I'm seeing them do for God's kingdom up in Fremont. I, James Onwamba is a friend of mine that planted a church with us in Lemora, Kenya. He, he, I see him sometimes check in in the comments, comment sections as we've been online. And James is a friend and, and it's a joy because he is a partner in the gospel. See, see that's where the joy in life comes from when we have relationships that go actually beyond friendship, but we have relationships where we're partnering in the gospel. I think of the current staff here at church. My, my greatest joy as a pastor is to be able to come into work every day and hang out with young guys that energize me because they have this passion, not just to build the church, but to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, to give their lives for something that matters. I don't have the time to highlight all of them, but let me just highlight one couple specifically, uh, Chris and Carolyn Moeller. And the reason they come to mind right now, it's interesting. We preached through the book of Philippians eight years ago in 2012. And as I was thinking and preparing for this passage, I'm like, I wonder what I said about it last time I preached, but I didn't preach this passage. I didn't remember it. So I went back to a series that we did in 2012 called I Choose Joy, and Chris Moeller taught this passage. He taught it on November, I believe, 18th of 2012. Now, now, a couple things. If you go back and watch it, which I would encourage you to do, his message was about characteristics of godly friends, very different than mine, but very, very good. And, and as I watch Chris preach this message, first of all, Carolyn's leading worship before he preaches, and we're in a warehouse at International Aid, and we're not very cool and Chris isn't wearing jeans yet. That would come later. And as Chris preaches the message, uh, the sound isn't really good and the quality of the music isn't what we're used to today. And the stage is pretty bare. But there's Chris serving faithfully right from the beginning, serving faithfully, serving faithfully. Carolyn serving faithfully. I think of the 10 years we spent together, Phil, Chris has carried so many different buckets for us, done so many different things, pouring his heart when there were seasons where it was easy, when it was difficult, same with Carolyn. And, and I look at them and I look at the, the friendship that we have with that family and their kids. And I say, man, that's a source of joy for me. That's a godly friendship because they've been not just friends and, and not just partners in ministry, but, but they're proven. They're Fellow soldiers, they've given their life for the gospel. There's a joy in that. So let me give you one more. This is from the bookends, kind of the verse at the beginning and the end of this. Not only is his hope in the Lord and his trust in the Lord and these godly partnerships, but here's the fourth thing that I see. Paul's a thankful person. He's developed the discipline of being thankful. He says in verse two, uh, chapter two, verse 17, I am glad and rejoice with you all. 
Likewise, be glad and rejoice in me, verse 18. And then in next week, not to steal where Cal's going, but he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Paul has made the choice that there is nothing you can do to him. There is no place that you can put him. There is no situation that he will find himself in where he will not be thankful. Have you made that choice? Again, the big idea is, is your joy worth imitating? As your pastor, I have learned so much by the people that God has allowed me to pastor. I was thinking back not too long ago, I was asked to um, do a funeral. And, and the funeral was for a, a child of a young couple in our church. And I, I didn't know the couple very, very well, but um, that is for me as a, as a pastor, one of the most agonizing situations that I can find myself in. And I'm at the funeral and Chris Moeller was actually leading the worship and leading the group of family and a few friends that had gathered there in worship. And, and, and I was going to be the one that had to give the message next. And, and I was a wreck in the back of the room. And I'm just kind of pacing back and forth saying, how in the world do you give hope? And I'm not even sure that I can hold it together. I'm falling apart watching this scene play out understanding the deep sorrow that this husband and wife are experiencing in the loss of their young child and just kind of agonizing with them. And as I'm trying to hold it together in the back of the funeral home before I have to speak, I'm noticing, and, and I probably was the only one in the room that had an angle on this, but I'm, I'm watching the dad and the mom as Chris leads worship. And it was subtle. I think I was probably the only one in the room that saw what I saw. But I watched the mom of this young child in black, grieving the loss. And as Chris led in worship, I just watched into her side. I just watched her turn her palm up in worship. Worshiping the Lord joy in the midst of sorrow, rejoicing while dressed in black at the funeral of their child. And, and, and I remember in that moment, just looking at that and saying, that's it. Like, like that's the joy that I want. That's a joy worth imitating. That's what Paul's calling us to. He's saying, live your lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Imitate my joy, put your hope in the Lord, put your trust in the Lord, develop relationships that encourage you to be joyful in the Lord and be thankful. That's the call. The big question is simply this, is our joy worth imitating? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, the faithfulness of your word. And Father, I even think of this passage in this season. Thank you for leading our church to this study at this time. Thank you for the reminders that seem so relevant to what many of us are experiencing today. Father, teach us to be joyful, not because of our circumstances, but in spite of our circumstances, putting our hope and trust in you. It's in the great name of our example, Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, that we pray. Amen.